at chapter 4 of 1 Peter, verses 12 through 19. Hard lessons for hard times. With British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge, yes, I'm sorry, dismissed kids. Malcolm Muggeridge, journalist from Britain, wrote, as an old man looking back on one's life, it's amazing that the one thing that strikes most forcibly is that the only thing that taught one anything is suffering. The only thing that has taught anyone anything is suffering. He goes on and says, not success, not happiness, not anything like that. The only thing that really teaches us what life's about is suffering. I think he's right. Most of us don't learn very much from the easy life, from the good life, so to speak, from good health, from, from happy days, from money, from, from good fortune. We enjoy those things, but we don't learn so much from them. It, it seems that we have to spend some time in the school of hard knocks, so to speak, to learn the lessons that God has for us. And I think that's the point that, that Peter keeps coming back to over and over as we look at suffering. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, I think, is, is the high point of this book, of this letter. Let's read it one more time. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And yet anyone who suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. I think in this passage today, we see four important lessons for us. One, we should expect suffering. We should expect hard times as believers. Two, hard times should bring us closer to God. Three, hard times should lead us towards self-examination. And fourth, hard times should teach us to trust God in new ways as we see more and more of who He is and who we are. But first, we should expect hard times. Verse 12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. We're not expecting to be 
hated and persecuted these believers in Asia Minor, whom uh, Peter wrote to, were surprised by their suffering. They probably expected that their lives in Christ Jesus would be filled with blessings and benefits and protection. They didn't have the benefit of the scriptures that we have today. And for us, Jesus' own words should be a warning for us. He said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. We can add to that Paul's admonition to Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Apostle John warned, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The American church, the Western church in general, needs to hear this message. Suffering is a part of the Christian life, even painful suffering. And believers in other parts of the world know that so very well. Christians around the world face a variety of oppression because of their faith in Jesus Christ. The risk of imprisonment, loss of home and assets, physical torture, beheading, rape, murder. Over 200 million believers in over 60 countries face some degree of, of restriction and discrimination and persecution from Syria and Iraq and Iran and Egypt to North Korea to China to Vietnam, Laos from India and Pakistan, Bangladesh to Sri Lanka, to Indonesia to Malaysia and Burma, from Cuba to Colombia, to Mexico, Nigeria, Sudan. I could go on. All around the world, we see that. Just two weeks ago, a Pakistani pastor and his family were attacked in their home on May the 27th by radical Islamists. It was the third time this year that they were attacked. They went into the house and 35 men beat up the pastor, his wife, and their college-age daughter. The mob seized their home, so now they're homeless. In Algeria, families usually force couples to divorce if one converts to Christianity. Converts lose their children. Children automatically will stay with a Muslim partner. And when it becomes public that someone has become a believer in Jesus Christ, Usually, they have to flee their village and their homes. And Ibrahim is one of those guys who lived in the southern part of Algeria. And over two years, he met with a pastor. And finally, after two years, he came to faith in Jesus Christ. But because he feared losing his wife and his children, he didn't tell them of his conversion. But finally, after a time period... He shared with his father his faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> he said that for 15 minutes, his father just stared at him silently, not saying a word. He got up. He went and got all of Abraham's brothers and sisters and came back. And the brothers began beating him and shouting, you will renounce your faith. And what's so hard was 
His little children were watching, and the little girl said, Daddy, please renounce your faith and return to Islam so you can always be our daddy. It's in the context of this that the, the word beloved in verse 12 is so important. It's not just a throwaway line or, or a, a throwaway word. It's, it's key, I think, to what Peter wants us to know. I think this is what he was saying. God loves you in the midst of your suffering. I love you in the midst of what you're going through. Therefore, don't be surprised when you suffer as a believer. Let's be honest. Severe suffering can tempt us to doubt God's love, can it? As we go through struggles, not even necessarily persecution, but just hard, difficult times can cause us to trust and doubt God's love. Sometimes it can cause us to have the thoughts that Job's wife had when she said to Job, curse God and die. The idea of suffering in a Christian life is kind of hard for many of us to accept. Just talking with people in the last couple of weeks where there are people whose theology is that we as Christians should never suffer. And it's unbiblical for real Christians to suffer. We live in an age where your best life is now. But Peter would tell us that our best life is in Jesus Christ. And that suffering always comes with it. So don't be surprised. We can't escape it. And don't be surprised that the gospel will be offensive to many. Most of us just don't think that way. We're surprised when these fiery trials uh, come, and we wonder where they come from and, 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 and why. When we think, we don't deserve this. Chuck Swindoll said, if we view life as a schoolroom and God is the teacher, then we should not be surprised when we have pop quizzes and examinations. Again, as Christians, we should not be surprised when trials come. We should expect them. Secondly, second lesson, hard times should bring us closer to God. Verses 13 and 14, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his joy is revealed. If you're insulted... Because of the name of Jesus Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Let's be real. We may not rejoice in the suffering. We may not rejoice in the pain. But we rejoice in the ultimate good and the outcome that the pain and suffering brings. I love what Paul says in Romans 5, he says that we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character produces what? Hope. Hope. We're blessed in three ways as we suffer for Jesus Christ. We, we share in his suffering participation with Christ. And the word uh, participate in verse 13 is a verb form of the Greek word koinonia, which is usually translated fellowship. And we think of fellowship 
what we think about? Good times, party, uh, picnic. But here, Peter uses this word fellowship in connection with the suffering of Jesus Christ. Our sufferings join us together. There's a blessing of being joined together with Jesus Christ in a way that nothing else can join us together. Second, we're blessed as we suffer because we experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes on us in a special way. The passage says that the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. As I was studying this week, I, my mind just went to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember? When they were thrown into the fire and they, and they looked and there was a fourth person in there watching over them. You remember Stephen when he was stoned? He had just shared the gospel with the Sanhedrin. And as he was being stoned, he gazed into heaven and he saw Jesus Christ at the right hand. And he said, Father, forgive them. That's the Spirit of God. And remember Paul? Paul, when he was facing opposition and riots and he was afraid there in Corinth, and the Lord appeared to him encouraged him to go on speaking the gospel. Later on, the Lord appeared to Paul um, in Jerusalem and, and said that you will witness for me in Rome. And when he stood trial in Rome, even though everybody else deserted him, the apostle Paul witnessed that the Lord stood with him and strengthened him. In the midst of suffering, it's easy to forget that God rules in our hard spots, so to speak, with love and with wisdom and with power. He knows all things. I love Acts 17, 26 and 27. It says that, that he, being God, made one man, every nation of mankind, to live on the earth on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him, find Him. And he goes on, he says, yet He is actually not far from each of us. He's not far from each of us. Too often when we think about God's sovereignty, we, we picture Him somewhere in a distant heaven, sitting on the throne, taking care of all the big events in life, being in charge of the universe. But the picture here that Paul gives is uh, couldn't be more different. Paul wants us to know that God's sovereignty is more than a big event rule. He wants us to know that God cares and is involved in the small details of our lives. And he gives specific examples. Hey, he says that God determines our allotted times and the boundaries of our dwelling place. And when Paul says our allotted times, he means the length of your life. And when he says boundaries of your dwelling place, he means your address, where you live. Think of God then in his sovereignty as being directly involved in the length of every person's life. But there's more. 
There's more. God has chosen to rule in His way to be near to each of us. Sure, Paul believes in God's transcendent sovereignty, the fact that he, he, he exists far above all, beyond our understanding. There's that transcendent sovereignty. But here Paul is reminding us that in a way that we can't understand, that even though he, yes, he exists far above, beyond our comprehension and understanding, there's that imminent sovereignty where God is near. God is near. And Paul wants us to know that wherever we are and whatever we're going through, that God is so near that we can reach out and touch him and that he is sovereignly close. He is reachable. He's touchable in our struggles. Sometimes we don't feel that, but we don't live by our feelings. The God who is our hope in suffering is near because he always has been and he will always be involved in the very little details of our lives. Or third, as we think about these blessings because of suffering, we can rejoice in trials because they lead us to a deeper level of joy when Christ returns. And Paul says that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us later. Going back to Peter, Peter wants us to understand that nothing moves us closer to Christ than we'll go through hard times. It's not that suffering in and of itself brings us uh, to Christ, but it's what the suffering does to us and in us. Have you ever been flat on your face in prayer? Have you ever been felt like you've been knocked down over and over? And we look to God and we know Him as our Savior. We put aside our pride and in desperation we cry out to God for help. God allows us to go through these hard times so that we are drawn closer to Christ. Hard times and suffering. We, we have so many things we can learn, but one is we should expect these hard times. Two, hard times bring us closer to God. And third, hard times should lead to self-examination. Verses 15 through 18. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? As we examine our own hearts I think there are three questions we can ask. First one is, is this trial due to a known sin in my life? If it is, what do we do? Repent. We repent. Sometimes we bring trouble on ourselves, don't we? And I think that's what Peter is saying in verse 15. If you do wrong, you should expect to suffer. He identifies four areas there. 
um, murderers and thieves and evildoers or criminals, I think some versions say, and a meddler, somebody who is in other people's business. At this point, good theology is very important for us. Verse 17 says that judgment begins with the household of God. Persecution forces us to decide where we stand and what we believe. The hands of the persecutors are, in a sense, God's hands. He allows evildoers to turn the heat on, so to speak, to purify us in trials. It starts with us, that judgment. We're not condemned. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But the judgment begins, I think, through discipline here on earth. And will continue on the judgment seat of Christ. To be judged not for our salvation, but for the works and rewards. It starts with us. As we think of eternity, verse 18 asks the question, what will become of those who don't know Christ, who don't choose Christ? There's judgment. There's judgment. We're saved by grace if we're saved. And yet, still, we're judged. He disciplines us to make us holy. But what about those who don't know Christ? Verse 18 says that it's hard for the righteous, for those who are in Christ Jesus, to be saved. He's talking about the troubles and trials that we go through, through many dangers, toils, and snares that have come. Hard times. Hard times are part of God's severest mercy for His children. Those hard times loosen from us our love for this earth and for the things of the earth and makes us long for heaven. It's hard for us to make it to heaven. We barely make it. (laughs) It's only by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's only because the Spirit of God lives within us. It's only because of, of the fact that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who encourage us in the midst of these trials But for those who don't know Jesus Christ, this world is the only heaven they know or will know. And when they die, they enter into eternal torment and judgment. Right now, if you look around the world, it may not seem like these non-believers are in any kind of problem because God is patient. God is patient. And he longs for the unbeliever to come to a saving faith. But the day is coming when God's patience will run out. It's an old Saxon king set up, uh, set off rather with, with a, an army of his to put down a rebellion in a distant province. And when the resurre- insurrection rather had been crushed and the rebels defeated, the king placed a candle in the archway of the castle where he had his headquarters set up. And lighting the candle, he sent out word to all who had been in rebellion against him. And he says that to those who surrender and who take an oath of, of loyalty, while the candle is still burning, that he would be offered clemency and mercy. And, but the offer was only good as long as the life of the candle. And when the candle burned out, his mercy ended. 
God's patience has a limit. His candle will burn out, so to speak, one day. And when the candle of God's patience burns out, no one will be able to rescue those who do not know Jesus Christ. Today, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, don't presume on God's patience. One day your life will end. We're not promised this afternoon. And surely not tomorrow. Today, God holds back his judgment and so you may run to him for salvation. Putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. Turn from your sin and trust Christ now. If you've been thinking about this and keep thinking, i got plenty of time. We don't know what we have. We're not promised tomorrow. I love the picture in Ezekiel, chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. It paints a picture of what happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. I love that last part, which is so true, isn't it? I will put my spirit within you and will cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. It's all grace, isn't it? He works in our lives. Lessons learned. We should expect suffering. Hard time and suffering brings us closer to God. Third, hard times should lead to self-examination. Fourth lesson, hard times should teach us to trust God in new ways, in different ways, as we learn more about Him, and as we learn more about ourselves. Verse 19 says, So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. When trouble comes, and it comes sooner or later for all of us, I promise you, it generally... We, we can't generally do much about it. We can't wave our hands and make the sick well, or put money in the bank, usually, or cause angry people to like us. But there's one thing we can do. Verse 19 says we can commit ourselves to our Creator God. Commit ourselves to Creator God. And the word commit is a banking term, it means to make a deposit. Now, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I came out of desperation. And I said to the Lord, Lord, I've messed my life up. I I, I give you my life. I'm yours. So I made that deposit. Sure, there have been times that I've wanted to remove that deposit in the midst of life. 
Have you ever made that decision? Have you ever said, Lord, I give you my life. I give you my life. Use me in any way that you want. Is that a step that you need to take today? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7-10 through 10 says that we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. And he goes on, and he, and he, Paul says that we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Christ may also be manifest in our body. God uses suffering to remind us that the surpassing power is in Him and not in us. God uses suffering in our lives to produce good. You know, in suffering, God is at work to do something far better than what we have planned. He's not going to content just to dispense temporary relief when eternal change is what we really need. During our redemption, he sometimes uses hard tools to soften uh, our hearts and produce good and sturdy hearts. You know, I still think back when I came to faith in Jesus Christ and, and I had a degree in business and my, my goal in life was to be involved eventually have my own type of business. But in the midst of it, I, I would apply for these different jobs in rural West Alabama. And I was so disappointed when I didn't get these jobs that I wanted as I applied here and I applied here and I applied here. And I look back, <laughs> I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that, that I didn't stay there. I'm thankful that God had a better plan for my life, that he encouraged me to go to Southeastern Bible College, to come here for a summer before getting, heading to California to seminary, and then coming back here for 36, 37 years. You see, God had a different plan. My plan was to be in rural Alabama. Oh, and I was going to teach. I wanted to teach and be involved. But see, God planned so often. It's far different than what you and I think would be best. He uses this suffering to teach us. Suffering has that power to destroy our self-reliance and cause us to rely on God. It exposes that we're not self-sufficient and that we need others. The pain and weakness of suffering causes us to reach out to God in a more genuine way. I still remember years and years ago when I bought a house on Rockwell. It needed major work. And those of you who know me know that my skills in carpentry are none. They're minus none. And it was people like Ben Rosado, who came along and did things for me. It was Carmelo and Israel who come and helped me remove piles of dirt and trash 
There was other men in the church and women who come along and helped so we could have a house. Now, my pride was hurt. I need my brothers, sisters, Christ. And suffering shows us that we can't live this life alone. The pain causes us to look to God and to others. Second Corinthians, Paul talks about the fact that he was so burdened, he felt like he had the sentence of death on him. But he says, but it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Men, women, in our flesh, we want to do things on our own. But we need God. We need each other. Suffering has the power not only to, to show us that we're not self-reliant, but it also shows us our self-righteousness. Suffering draws out that irritability, that envy, that demanding spirit, that impatience and doubt and anger. When it comes out, we see our tremendous need for God's grace and mercy. Third, suffering has the power to expose our idols. What really is dear to us, what we think that we can't live without, and what really rules in our heart, suffering prepares us. It prepares us for the future. I, I love, again, First, Second Corinthians chapter 1, where it talks about that God comforts us so that we, in turn, can comfort those who are in affliction. Again, there's no place in Scripture that says we should be surprised and shocked when suffering comes. Instead of trying to figure out things on our own, as I'm prone to do, we need to say, Lord, I can't do it. Lord, I admit that without you, I can't change anything. Lord, let your will be done in my life. Whatever it takes, whatever it costs, nothing held back. And when we pray that way, God hears from heaven. And whether or not our circumstances change, our heart changes. God begins that work our lives. You know, we'll never believe what this passage says about suffering if we don't believe in the sovereignty of God, the details of our lives. Peter is teaching us that every trial comes our way is under God's control. Nothing can touch us that does not first pass through his loving hands. And we'll never believe in God's sovereignty in our trials unless we also believe that he loves us. That he loves us with an everlasting love. We'll never be convinced of God's love unless we fix our gaze on the cross of Jesus Christ. Apart from the cross, it makes no sense, does it? We need, we need to hear this message today so badly. We need it. I want us to remember that 
We're loved. We're loved by God with everlasting love. We must not be surprised by suffering. We must allow the sufferings in Christ to bring us closer to Him. We must remember that God uses the suffering to purify us. And to remember that as we go through the suffering, we get to know God in new and different ways as we learn more about ourselves and need for Him and for each other. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage. We thank you, Father, for your word. Father, for the power of it. We ask, Father, that you would enable us to trust you, to rest in you in the midst of hardship and struggles. Father, we know that this passage today is primarily about suffering for our faith in Jesus Christ. We know, Father, that that may be coming to us in the near future. Who knows? But, Father, in the midst of life, may we trust you just for this suffering and hardship that we face. In Christ's name, amen.